0: As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. As soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, while the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? and David answered I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite as soon as he finished speaking to Saul the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David sent out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants.
1: Lord, we ask for your counsel and guidance through your word. We ask, Lord, that our hearts would be humble, and attentive and willing to receive your instruction and, Lord, the, the ways in which, Lord, you want us to be affected and changed by this passage of scripture. Lord, allow us to nestle into this text and to allow your Holy Spirit to, to, to squeeze us and to, um, to, to bring things, Lord, to our attention that you want us to see. And Lord, allow me to be your messenger. Allow me just to simply reflect your truth in a way that would honor you and would help your people this morning. So we ask for your guidance, your counsel, your help, and for your will to be done in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When it comes to the study of God's word, there are two very important words that we must understand. The first word is the word exegesis. An exegesis really has the idea of looking into a passage of scripture and seeing what is there. The idea is to look carefully and pull out of the text what you find in that text. Your job as an exegete is to be a detective who's gathering the facts in order to come to a conclusion. So if we're practicing good exegesis, what we're doing is we're coming to a passage of scripture and we're saying, what does the scripture say? What is there? What can we find? And from that, we come to conclusions. Eisegesis, however, is like the opposite of that. It's coming to a text with predetermined ideas, and therefore, forcing on that text things that that text is not actually saying. And so in that sense, you're kind of like a detective who's going into a crime scene, and planting false evidence. And so you're creating a scenario out of that text that is not there at all. And friends, there's, just, there's an element that we all actually do some eisegesis. We all have some ideas. We all have agendas. We all have certain, uh, I might want to say, tainted worldviews that we can bring to a text, or maybe we have a particular sin that we love, and so we, we kind of fashion this passage of Scripture to suit our own ends. So if we're going to be honest and we're going to be humble and we're going to be careful in our study of the word of God, we must pursue exegesis and we must fight with everything in our being against eisegesis. We want to see what is there and pull it out and we don't want to come to a text and force on it something that is not there. Now, this is something that we are passionate about. In fact, any genuine follower of God who loves God's word is going to be passionate about faithful exegesis. In fact, this is what the Bereans did when Paul went into Thessalonica um, and, 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 and ministered there in the synagogue. Listen to what Acts 17 says. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so when they moved from Thessalonica to Berea, the Bereans said, hey, listen, we're, we're going we're to look for ourselves. We're going to see if what you're saying is actually there and come to conclusions. Now also, this is what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy to do in 1 Timothy or sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and in, of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in, uh, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with, with uh, complete patience and teaching, for the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of, evangel- of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. But this is, this is all a charge that is founded on the preaching of the word. Not the preaching of your ideas that somehow you find the word supporting. It's the preaching of the word. It's, this is what the word says. In fact, when Jesus talked to the, 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 the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, what does he do? He goes back in the law and the prophets, and he reveals himself from the word. This is who I am. Not forcing on a text, but allowing the text to speak. And friends, uh, when, when people want to twist the scripture to suit their own ends, we must see it for what it really is, a perversion of God's word. That's what happens, friends, with the cults. They use the same Bible that we use, but they twist its meaning to suit their own fancy. They use clever arguments. They use persuasive speech to beat people down into submission to their perverted claims. And friends, I'm laying this foundation ultimately to say this as it relates to our text this morning. This is what has happened with this passage of scripture as it relates to the gay and lesbian agenda. Writers, church leaders, and commentators that are eager to promote the gay and lesbian agenda will come to this passage and read far too much into the story of Jonathan and David than it is actually saying. They're eager to find examples, so they think, in historical texts to somehow prove the normalcy of homosexuality. And normalcy that they would, in their twisted understanding, show that the Bible isn't really against homosexuality, that in fact, um, we're just reading it wrong. And in fact, that the church, because of its prejudices, has been reading it wrong for almost 2,000 years. So now, with their interpretive tool, this interpretive key, this reinventing of what is going on here, they come to the conclusion that Jonathan and David are two of the most famous homosexual men in history. But, as is often the case with eisegesis, their conclusions undermine their own credibility and reveal their biases, that would be adding to the text what is not there, to suit their own gay and lesbian agenda. Now, If we were to jump into this text and read these words, and this is what was read earlier, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. You can backfill those words of knit and love with all sorts of homosexual expression, but if you were to do that, you'd be missing the tone and the purpose of the whole text. Let me show you why. Look, if you would, please, at 1 Samuel chapter 16, and verse 21. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 21, it says there, Saul loved whom? David. Saul loved David. That was when David was playing the lyre. As in the, what do you call that thing? The harp, right? Then we find in chapter 18, verses 1 and 3, what we've already read in our text, that Jonathan loved David because they were of like-minded passion. Then we find in 1 Samuel 18, verse 16, that Israel and Judah loved David because he protected them. He was their, um, their hero. He was their deliverer. And then a little later on in chapter, uh, chapter 18, verse 20, we have Michael, who's the daughter of Saul, David's future wife. She loved David. Now, if we're understanding interpretation correctly, you can't just walk into this expressions of love through this passage and say, well, this one is homosexual love, but this one is not. You've got to be consistent with what is there. It is natural. It is appropriate. It is right for two men to love one another like Jonathan and David loved one another. In fact, you could summarize chapter 18 here as the love chapter on David. There's all sorts of love that's going on here. There's no sexual or homosexual overtone in the relationship of Jonathan and David, but one of friendship, like-mindedness, and admiration. Now just just think about this. Whatever happened to the idea that two totally straight, heterosexual men could actually have a bond of love between them that is pure, Christ-like, and without any perverse sexual overtones? Whatever happened to that idea? Sadly, men, often the ways that men have reacted to the gay agenda is to refrain from any masculine kind of affection that is normal and natural. I mean, as a guy, are you okay giving another guy a hug? You go to some cultures, the guys actually kiss, right? Right? I mean, I've been to some cultures where I'm actually afraid because it's normal they actually kiss, you know? It's a little awkward, but for them it's no big deal, All right? Now, for, for ladies, for the women, one of the ways that women have reacted to the gay agenda is to pull back from their innocent and affectionate manner with other ladies. I've mentioned to you, I've, I've been to Russia plenty of times, and one of the things that struck me when I was in Russia with the Russian people, and this is godly Russian young people was how the girls were so physically affectionate to one another. They thought nothing of just walking down the street together, holding on to each other's arms and just kind of laughing and hugging as they went. In our culture, it's kind of like, ooh. And there's a sense in which we've allowed the perversion of the culture to determine how we behave, and how we express genuine Christ-like love for one another. And in particular, as it relates to those of the same sex. Now maybe we've lost some kind of brotherly and sisterly affection in our reaction to the growing presence of the gay agenda. And maybe we need to re-examine what it means to truly have Friends, what it means to have a depth of affection for one another as the church, what does that look like? Now, this morning we come to the end of the story of David and Goliath. It's actually a transitional passage, but it's a transitional passage that has within it um, a very, very important picture for us of genuine friendship, which ultimately will take us to the place of seeing the kind of friendship that we have with Christ. But our text begins with David leaving for battle. So this is kind of a flashback text. It's a conversation that Saul has with Abner and David, um, or Abner after David met with Saul and convinced him that even though he was a young uh, man with seemingly little experience, that actually he was ready to take on Goliath and he was gonna go do it. And having rejected the use of Saul's armor, he walks away into battle, and then he returns with the head of Goliath. Now, if if there's ever a I told you so in history, this is it. And these few verses were given what I'm calling the initial response of the people to their hero, the young champion slayer, David. How do people initially respond to him? And we really have three groups that are mentioned in these passages. We have have Saul, we have Jonathan, and we just kind of a general sense, we have the people mentioned here. So to put it another way, what kind of new relationships are initially formed by David's victory over Goliath? Relationship with Saul, with David and the people, and we'll need to ask two questions. What is the essence of a healthy, godly relationship that glorifies God? And what is the text teaching us about our relationship with Christ? I want you to notice that the details of Saul's and Jonathan's response to David are mingled together in the story And when you find that mingling together in a story, it's there for a reason, and often or usually it's there as a means of comparison for those two. So although we're actually going to deal with one at a time, we're going to kind of pull from from the, the text the different aspects of each of them, because there is a stark difference between how Saul responds to David and how Jonathan, Saul's son, the heir apparent, responds to David in this context we have in these few verses then is a comparison between Saul and Jonathan, followed by a summary response from the people. So let's look first of all then at the response of Saul, the response of Saul. If we remember, in chapter 17, the rumors that were being spread around about what would happen to the man who killed Goliath, this is what the soldiers were saying. Number one, the king would enrich the man with great riches. Number two, he would give him his daughter in marriage. Number three, he would make his father free in Israel. In other words, his family would no longer have to pay taxes. So chapter 18 will show how those become a reality in David's life. You'll see that he eventually does get married to one of the daughters of Saul. Um but we'll see how these questions and these, these, the answers to those questions impact Saul and ultimately we'll see here Saul's first response to this and we see it in verses 55 through the end of chapter 17 and I'm calling it this. He's concerned about David's parentage. He's concerned about who is this son's or this little boy's, young boy's father, right? As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? The emphasis is, now, is not so much on who is David, but whose son, who is the father here, right? And Abner says, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So this this question for Saul was a very important question. When it was first asked, as David is going into battle, the question is a possibility. But now that David comes back with Goliath's head in his hand, the question has now become a reality. And the reality is that if those rumors are true that Saul said these things, then Saul has to ask himself the question, what kind of family am I bringing into my royal family? What kind of connections am I going to have with this particular family? It was a question of parentage. But it's also, if you want to step back a little bit, a wonderful reminder of the subtle providence of God these events. Not only was God revealing David as his anointed champion and deliverer by defeating Goliath on the battlefield, but but God was also working his plan in the political arena, creating David's legitimate place in the royal family. It's God's amazing providence to work through the affairs of mankind to accomplish the purpose of raising up his king. So it looks like Saul will have to work with a Bethlehemite, a simple family. But we know a secret, don't we? We know something about David that Saul does not know yet. We know that Samuel went to Bethlehem and went to Jesse's household and had all the brothers pass in front of him, but ultimately had to bring the shepherd boy in, and it was the shepherd boy that God had chosen to be the future king of Israel, and so Saul anointed him. Sorry, Samuel anointed him, thank you, and prepared him then to be that ultimate king. But he's not yet crowned. That's part of the secret. That's part of the, the facts of what is happening here that we're aware of. Saul's not aware of. Saul, though, is concerned about the lineage, he's concerned about the purity of his family. Secondly, I want you to notice that he's concerned about David's recruitment. It says in verse 2, And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Saul took him, or kept him, which of course was really par for the course. Turn back, if you would, to the summary statement of Saul's kingship that is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 14, just a few pages back. And verse 47 through 52. I just want you in particular to notice verse 52. This is the summary statement of Saul's kingship. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he attached him to himself. When I say this is par for the course, Saul sees a valiant young man. And he sang to himself, I want him, I need him, right here with me. And then, be reminded of how the servant of Saul describes David in chapter 16, verse 18. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. And then we're reminded also of God's counsel to Israel in 1 Samuel 8, in verse 11, about their desire to have a king like the nations. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and not to run before his chariots, or and to run before his chariots. In other words, when Saul is taking David, when he is When he's keeping him for himself, he's simply doing what God said a king would do. He's simply doing what Saul, was recorded here in the summary passage, like to do. And he is thinking about David more in terms of how it will benefit himself rather than how it's going to benefit others. So notice the silence from Saul regarding David's heroic behavior. David goes out. After 40 days of nothing, David goes out and kills the giant. Look look in these chapters and tell me where does Saul say, hey man, that was really good, thank you. Are there any words of appreciation? No. Is there any kind of words of thanks or, uh, or, or accolades that are given? No. Everything just seems cold and calculated. Rather selfish. It appears that Saul is thinking here is a young man gifted at war, willing to stand in the face of danger. I need to keep him around for my own personal benefit. He can fight more battles for me, he can protect me once again. This is good for me. Now, also notice that he's concerned about David's promotion. Verse five, and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul sent him over the men of war. Saul had a useful soldier on his hands and he was going to use him as much as he could. So he promoted David over the men of war and gave him conquest after conquest and he was successful. Now friends, as we see The relationship between David and Saul developed. We can see from Saul's perspective that it's all utilitarian. It's all about how will Saul benefit from the relationship? It's all about what can David do for Saul. Saul's relationship with David, revealed in this passage, is focused on David or how David can benefit Saul. Will his family heritage benefit me? Do they have lands? Do they have crops? Do they have cattle? Do they have prestige? Do they have some kind of influence? Will his skill in battle benefit me? I've seen him fight, and I want that kind of soldier on my side. Or how can I use this man to benefit me and my kingdom? He can help me gain the kingdom that Samuel said I would lose, and he can fight against armies in my place so that I don't have to risk my life. Now, friends, there is something about... um, what are often called fake friends. That's a picture, what we have here, of this kind of relationship that sometimes people pursue, but it's a fake relationship. They're looking to be friends with someone who is from an important family who has money or who, have, who has influence, but in that scenario, all you're gonna find is this person using you as a stepping stone to trample on so that they can get or achieve their own selfish desires. They're looking for people who have skills that they can manipulate to suit their own ends. In that scenario, it isn't your position, but your skills that they want to use for their own benefit. And they're willing to put up with you or put up with a lot so that they are benefiting from your talents. your talents will help them achieve their goals. Or they're looking for people to fight the battles that they should be fighting. They're looking for people to shirk their responsibility of and put them on the other people. They don't care about the welfare of that individual. As long as they can do something for me, then that's all that really matters. Now, they don't come out and say that. Hey, would you be my friend? I want to use you. That's not usually how it works. But what we have here is we have kind of a, just kind of by descriptive form, but I, I think in, in consistency with the character of Saul here, we have this absence of, of what normal people, you might want to say, would do in this situation. I mean, all of Israel, will find out, is celebrating the fact that, you know, that David has been victorious here, but not Saul. Saul is calculating. Saul is thinking about himself. Now today, such friends are also known as frenemies, right? If you have a frenemy, if you don't have a frenemy, you soon will. How's that, right? They are people who pretend to be your friends, but in the end turn out to be just the opposite. They befriend you with the purpose of getting close to you so that they can ultimately destroy you. And we will see that that reality unfold in Saul's relationship with David as the next few chapters are revealed to us. But friends, sadly, that is how some people even approach Christ, isn't it? What can Christ do for, what's the next word? Me. See, it's all about me. And if if Christ can do things for me, then that's a good thing. Now, let's step back and ask, ask the question, does Christ do things for people? Answer, yes. He is, he, is, you know, he is the God of the universe. He is the son of God who went to the cross and died on the cross and paid for the sin of mankind. He bore the wrath of God on his shoulders. And if we put our faith and trust in him, then, then we are part of that saving people that he has died on the cross for. But some people, who are asking themselves, well, what can Jesus do for me, are saying, how will he bring me into riches or into an influential relationship with others now? How will he do things for me as I want them and and when I want them? So when I pray, he's supposed to answer my prayer. And when I'm in trouble, he's supposed to what? Get me out of trouble. And if he's my friend... I should rub the genie lamp of prayer and he is supposed to come to my aid. That's what he's supposed to do. He is there for me. Now the sad reality is that is often how Jesus is presented or portrayed from the pulpits of this world. This is what Jesus can do for you. If you'll only embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, everything will work out fine. You'll be happy. Anyone here a believer who's gone through trouble and it's not fine? Anyone a believer who may have gone through times, or maybe even now, and it's not happiness? There's a dishonesty in that statement and from that kind of attitude has come this concept that is often considered now the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. That God is there to be my servant. God is not there to be my servant. I am blessed to be his servant. I'm humbled. I get to serve him. Someone has wisely said, A false friend is like your shadow. As long as there is sunshine, he sticks close by. But the minute you step into the shade, he disappears. And as you can see from the example of Saul, his response to David, the giant slayer, the hero of Israel, it's a cold one. There isn't much emotion, there isn't much passion, but there seems to be a lot of selfish consideration. Which is not the best foundation for any deep relationship. Another person has aptly said, it is easy to treat people as a means to an end rather than as ends in themselves. As a gregarious man once boasted, I have friends I haven't even used yet. And Saul is not done with David yet either. Now we want to move from Saul Jonathan. And what a difference we find. There's a tendency to think that Jonathan and David were both teenagers at this point. But the reality was that Jonathan was between 25 or 30 years older than David. Old enough to be his father. And if we're to consider these two men outside of this text... In light of what might normally take place among men in their respective roles, you would expect that Jonathan would be jealous of David. Who was the hero of Israel before this? It wasn't Saul. It was Jonathan. And here comes David. And you would think that that Jonathan would consider him as an up-and-coming rival. He is the crown prince, He's the second in command, he's the the hero of the people, and now David is on the scene, and in a shocking manner. But that is not what we find, is it? No, what what we have here is a beautiful picture of genuine friendship, and then some. Notice, first of all, Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, Saul, the soul of Jonathan, was knit to the soul of David. Just get the the oomph of this passage. As soon as David comes in with the head of Goliath, he answers the questions, and as soon as they're done with that conversation, boom, this is what happens. His soul was knit to the soul of David. Now the last time we heard of Jonathan, he is doing his father's work of attacking and defeating the armies of the Philistines. Chapter 13 and chapter 14 in particular. And Jonathan had gained recognition from the people as the nation's savior. And it was the people who would not let Saul, because of his foolish vow, actually execute his son Jonathan because the people respected and loved Jonathan. Jonathan was the one who fought with great confidence in the Lord. Remember how he he scaled the rocky crags at Michmash? And he took on the Philistines that were encamped in this this palace there, or this tower that was there. Here's what we're told in 1 Samuel 14 and verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And that day, the bloody hand-to-hand combat, with the help of his armor-bearer, Was the basis of the Philistines being routed. Now, when it comes to David, as we think about how David stood up to the giant Goliath and defeated him, it's not surprising that Jonathan, apparently looking on, apparently aware of the whole scenario, it's not surprising that Jonathan would be impressed with a young man who had a like minded passion and zeal. Rather than be politically minded, Rather than be selfish and see David as a rival, Jonathan is drawn to David as a like-minded and a like-hearted brother. The words used to express this unity of passion are the words, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. So in modern vernacular, we would say that they were soul brothers. It is this kind of language that is used to describe Jacob's relationship with his son Benjamin in uh, Genesis chapter 44. Now understand, in Genesis chapter 44, Joseph is already gone. He believes that Joseph is dead. And the brothers now are in Egypt, and they've gone, and they've actually stood before this person whom they don't know is Joseph yet. And here's the conversation, because Joseph is saying, listen, when you go, you need to bring back the youngest. The youngest. And here's what we find out in the story. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with, uh, with us then, as his life is bound up in uh, the boy's life. We're told here that basically they're saying, listen, to, to pull Benjamin away from his father is going to be hard because his life is bound up with him. It's Genesis 44, verse 30. They were one in spirit. They were united together as father and son, now here as older men, younger men. And maybe Jonathan saw in David a younger version of himself. Here is someone I can pour myself into. Here is a young man I can spend time with and talk to whose passions are like mine. A love for the people of Israel and a love and a confidence in the God of Israel. Remember what Jonathan said to his armor-bearer in Mi'kmash, Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. I mean, what we we hear from Jonathan is a a Godwardness and a passion and a a belief that God is at work. Remember what David said to Goliath. You come to me with sword and with a spear and with a javelin. That's nothing. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. Now, if, if Jonathan could hear that, I don't know, but certainly we know that, 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 that David had communicated to Saul his, his willingness, his desire, his confidence that God was gonna deliver him that day. And, friends, as we think about this particular aspect, they were knit together. We come to this conclusion being knit together with a passion for God is the foundation of any deep friendship or relationship. If you're going to have a true relationship, if you're going to have a true friendship with anyone, it has to have as its foundation a like minded passion for the glory of God. A like-minded desire for God's will to be accomplished, for God's work to be done, that he would be center in everything that takes place. Now, great friends don't always think exactly alike on everything. In fact, often uh, it's the opposite, but they do share a same worldview and approach to life. True friends agree that God is the authority of their lives. They agree that seeking to know God is important day by day. They believe that heading in the same direction, pursuing God, is important. And true friends long for the same things. Again, the glory of God. They long to experience life with God at the center. So Jonathan saw that day, David, and how David viewed his life from the same perspective that Jonathan viewed his life that God is sovereign and he does as he pleases and all of life is to be lived for him. So friends, if you're looking for a good friend, men, if you're looking for a good buddy who's gonna be a good godly friend, ladies, if you're looking for a good friend to help you in your walk with God, if you're looking to develop a relationship between husband and wife, the foundational thing in that relationship is what do you think about God is he central and is your heart's desire to pursue life with his glory in mind not only did Jonathan um, was they knit together to the soul of David Jonathan also loved David as his own soul and Jonathan's love for David was a love of appreciation, admiration, as well as affection. We, in our Western way of thinking, tend only to see the emotional dimensions of the word love. But the Bible and the ancient Near Eastern world, more generally, use the term also in kind of political contexts. Just think with me in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 21. It says there, and David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. So in this passage, we're told that Saul loved David, but more out of appreciation for David, for what he was doing with his skills and abilities, because if you remember, he was tormented in his spirit, and David would play his lyre, and that would soothe him. And so he, he loved him, he, he appreciated what David was doing. We also find this this word used in 1 Kings chapter five and verse one. 1 Kings five, we have more an aspect of admiration. It says, now Hiram king of Tyre sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father for Hiram always loved David. Now those that have a gay and lesbian framework, what are they gonna say? Oh, this was another homosexual relationship that they had, right? No, this is nonsense. This was an admiration. This was a love of admiration. You know the picture that comes to my mind when I thought about this kind of political admiration? You may agree, disagree. But I thought of Ronald Reagan and the Iron Lady, Margaret Thatcher. Two completely different worlds, but like-minded in passion, like-minded in philosophy, like-minded And there's certainly a love of admiration. There's a love of appreciation. In our text, we also have intermingled with, I think, appreciation and affection, this uh, appreciation and admiration, we also have this love of affection going on here. Saul was knit to David with a love of appreciation. What David had done, he delivered Israel from the Philistines that day. It was also a love of admiration of David's gifts and his character and his tenacity. And it was also affection because of the unity of this like-minded passion that he saw in David. And so Jonathan's love for David was immediate. Kent Hughes says it well. It didn't develop over a month or even a day, but in a flash. Jonathan just saw David and saw what he did and when, he, when he got, his father got done talking to him, it's just like, boom, here is a man that I want to knit myself to. Here's a man that I love. And friends, i would say the application or the point here that is helpful for us to think through is this. True friendship is also based on a love that admires and appreciates another for who they are and how God has made them and is also demonstrated by a warm affection. Admiration, appreciation, and affection all bound together. Think about that person who you might say is your Best friend? Do you admire them? Do you appreciate them? And is that followed up by means of affection? And then we notice also that Jonathan covenanted with David. It says in verse 3 Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. We're not given all the details of this covenant that was initiated by Jonathan. But as the story unfolds, we will see how important this covenant is. Again, if you want to trace with me just in the next few chapters here, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18, verse 3, this covenant is called simply a covenant with David. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, and verse 8, David describes it as a covenant of the Lord. So this is not just something that was done between Jonathan and David. This has been done between Jonathan and David before the Lord, okay? And then, a little later on, 1 Samuel 20, verse 16, Jonathan expands the initial covenant to include the house of David. So Jonathan is committing by covenant with David. And David is responding, reciprocating, and agreeing to that covenant. Now, a covenant is a binding agreement, a vow or a promise between two parties before the Lord. Literally, Jonathan cut a covenant. It was like a contract but it was sealed with the blood of a covenant sacrifice. So there, was, a, there was, it was more than just a handshake. There was a serious ceremony that Jonathan took David through and by virtue of that ceremony saying, listen, I am covenanted to you. There's a bond here between us. And it meant that if Jonathan or David did not stand for one or the other, that the offender should be like the animal that was cut in the sacrifice. It's a serious statement of friendship that says we are united together. We are committed to one another. We are loyal, and we will stay loyal. And if we don't, if we violate it, then I should be like that sacrifice. Now friends, the application to us here simply is this, true friendship is a commitment of loyalty to one another and for the best for the other person. They work hard for and rejoice in the other person's elevation and achievements without any jealousy, without any envy. Such commitment and loyalty is a friendship void of manipulative hooks or relationship coattail riding. Dostoevsky was right on the path when he said to truly love a person is to see that person as God intended them to be. See, this, this love that is marked by a covenant says, I want the best for that person. Says, I want to invest in that person. And I will stand with that person through good times. And bad times. And as we see the story unfold, it is Jonathan that comes to David's aid. It is Jonathan that steps in and stands and speaks for him. It is David that withholds what he could do because he is united to this covenant. Then notice also, Jonathan honored David with royal gifts. He honored David with royal gifts. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So the covenant is followed by Jonathan showering David with royal gifts, his robe, his armor, his sword, his his bow, his belt. Some suggest that these gifts were Jonathan's way of abdicating his rights to the crown and that he saw in David the future king of Israel. Kent Hughes says, what sublime spiritual theater, symbolism of a noble soul, Jonathan the king's son stands humbly in his undergarments while the shepherd boy dons the prince's robe and armament. Jonathan's act was one of honor, equality, and vulnerability. Now remember, by this time, David had armor. Goliath's armor. Couldn't wear that could drag it maybe, but couldn't wear it. So when we're told there in 1 Samuel 17, verse 54, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but put his armor in his tent. But, but if David were to wear Jonathan's robe and, and armor, what would that communicate to the army of Israel? That David had found favor in the eyes of Jonathan, that David was now seen by Jonathan as an equal rather than simply a shepherd boy. But there's some behind the scenes implications going on here. Just think about David's rise. Just think about how how David came to be at this place. Remember back when we first introduced David. It is in the context of God's rejection of Saul um, being king. First Samuel chapter 15 verse 28 says this, and Saul said to to him, to Sam, uh, sorry, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So the reader there is left wondering who this neighbor is and how he will become king. And then, secondly, we're taken to Bethlehem where Samuel the prophet visits the household of Jesse and there we find that God has chosen the youngest, the runt of the family, who's the shepherd boy to be anointed as Israel's next king, and again, we're left wondering how this little shepherd boy could rise to, to be in the, the place of the king of Israel. And then we're taken to a conflict that lasted 40 days between Israel and the Philistine army and and no one is going out and challenging this, this giant, this Goliath, this champion of the Philistines and we're all surprised in the unfolding of the events that it's David, the shepherd boy, that is willing to stand for the honor of the Lord of Israel and he then with confidence takes on Goliath, kills him. But still, a hero of Israel he may be but he's not yet king. How's that gonna happen? And then we're surprised to find out that it's the prince of Israel, the heir apparent, the next to be the king, that he is taking a liking to this victorious shepherd boy. Now it's one thing to be knit to him, to love him and to make a covenant with him. It's another thing to transfer your own right to the throne to another. That is what is taking place in this narrative. God's providence is mysterious and causes us to marvel and to wonder. The twists and the turns are clearly the hand of God working and bringing about his purposes in the affairs of man. And as we continue the next few chapters, we'll see how the loyalty of this covenant relationship will flesh out. But now turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. This is not on the, the overhead, but I, th- I, think it's, I think it's a good way to remember this relationship because when Jonathan finally dies in battle, chapter, chapter one, verses 17 through 27 of Second Samuel is David's lament for Saul and for Jonathan. We're not gonna read the whole thing, but I want you to notice verse 25 through the end. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. See, there's there's an expression of depth of relationship in those words. There was something unique and unusual and beautiful about the, this love and this friendship between Jonathan and David. Now I want to bring a summary to this on a, on, on a I want to say a horizontal level and say what, is this, what does this mean for us? And I'm going to think about it in the context of church, of the church and what God is calling us to be as a church. So we want to summarize these nuggets of friendship that we see in Jonathan and David and what they mean for us as a church family. So first of all, I want to say this. Mutual passions. As a church, we, we recognize that if we come together under the banner of the glory of God, under the banner of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying on the cross for our sins, we are united in those mutual passions. We don't just put together, I might want to say, a doctrinal statement just to put together a doctrinal statement. We align together by saying we believe these things to be true. And what unites us together, what knits us together, what covenants us together is the wonderful reality that we have mutual passion, this desire to glorify God in all things. Therefore, we love the gospel of Jesus Christ, not a weak gospel, but a robust gospel that is Willing to talk about the good bits as well as the tough bits. We love the word of God and we want to keep that central. We want to keep making sure that that is what is being proclaimed and taught. Not just from here but also in the context of small groups as as well as youth and our children's ministry. We love to be taught, we love to be instructed in God's word and we're eager to study, that we long to be guided by God and, and to do his will and to live for him. Those are all part of the passion that we ought to have as brothers and sisters in Christ, friends together of the one who is the greatest friend of all. Mutual passion, secondly, mutual love. Love. We're to admire and appreciate the unique giftedness of each individual and express that love with a deep, God-centered affection. I mean, just in this room, we are all so different, are we not? And we're gonna celebrate a potluck. And, and, And just, I mean, look at the makeup of the people here. We're all from different ethnic origins you know, we're gonna have food from I don't know, we're gonna have American food, you know, the standard fare, right? But there might be some Russian food, there might be some Asian food, I don't know. What are you guys bringing? I don't know. Get me hungry. You're all thinking hungry now, right? But there's there's something, there's something wonderful about all of that coming together. To say that we're not we're not identifying and alienating ourselves, but we're saying, isn't that beautiful? That God has made you the way he's made you. And he's gifted you the way he's gifted you. And I want to see those gifts and those abilities be used for the glory of God. And I'm going to celebrate when God works through you and and, and you are able to accomplish something for his glory. We, We celebrate those things together. We're not walking around being envious and jealous of one another. Because there's this mutual love that recognizes how different we are and how that different Difference is beneficial to the body. Then there's also a mutual loyalty and commitment. As God's people, we're committed and loyal to one another as the body of Christ. As as the word of God says, the ear needs the foot and the eyes need the hand. We may have differing gifts, but we're committed to God's purposes in each of his children at work through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Your gifts are a blessing to the body of Christ. And by the way, The bulk of the discussion in God's word about spiritual gifts is not about impacting the world. It's about impacting the body. And we use those gifts to strengthen and help the body so that it can be what God desires for it to be for his glory. So there's this mutual loyalty, this mutual commitment. That's why when you come to be a part of a church, there is a partnership dynamic that we're saying, I want to be under the care, and I want to enjoy the fellowship of, and I want to benefit from all the different dynamics that make up the giftedness of that church and say, this is where I want to flesh out my loyalties, my commitments, and I want to see that reciprocated by those that are part of that church also to me. There's a strength of friendship that happens in the body of Christ. And then there's a mutual honor. We're all equals in the body of Christ and desire the best for one another. Slaves and masters, men and women, parents and children, rich and poor, classless, colorless. We honor one another for the glory of God. Now let's look at the response of the people. It's very simple. David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. It was good. I mean, just one word. It was good. All right? I mean, this is the, the people loved David. They loved the fact that they had a champion, that they had a hero, that they had a deliverer, they had a man who was protecting them, that, that there was stability in Israel. I do think it's interesting that it says all the people, then, secondly, it says the servants of Saul. You have the general population, but you also have, I would say, the royal court. All of them thought that it was good that David had been raised to this position and now was not just a one-time champion but was going out regularly now and standing before the enemies on their behalf. And it would seem that although Saul had promoted David, that it was Jonathan that really had elevated David. Big difference there. He had encouraged him, he had endorsed him, and he was loyal to him. Now friends, I want to I bring our thoughts now to a close, and we're going to take some time to think through then by, by saying, okay, we've looked at some of the horizontal realities of, of these friendships and the importance of them, but now we want to think vertically a little bit about what do we learn from this passage that helps us understand our relationship with Christ. So I want you to think along those lines, and I want to encourage you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 15, John chapter 15. We'll begin reading there. It's worth for us noting that the Bible speaks of Jesus being our friend, or I should say it this way the Bible speaks of us being friends of Jesus. By that, I don't mean to be using some watered down lingo to refer to Jesus. He's not your buddy, he's not your homeboy, he's not your co pilot. He's not the man upstairs. No, he is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator of the universe. But here's what he says to his disciples. Greater love has no one than this. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his what? His friends. And he's speaking about himself. He's speaking about what he is about to do. You are my friends if you do what I com- uh, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. In other words, it doesn't it doesn't matter what's in the head of the master; the servant just does what he's told. But see, bre- friends are brought in. Friends are, are given the mind of that master. So we've brought in been brought into this new relationship with Christ. He says, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So this friendship is saying, listen, I want to I talk to you and I have been talking to you. I've been making known what the father has been revealing. I am drawing you in to this circle that's called friend. I'm not just saying go do. That's what a tyrant does. I'm, I'm saying come learn Come see, come understand. It's a completely new kind of relationship. So Jesus calls his disciples friends, and by extension he calls us friends now too. Now our friendship with Christ is bound to be different than Jonathan's friendship with David, because David is just a man. He was a great man, but he was a flawed man. Jonathan was able to have an equal relationship with him, but Christ is perfect. He's fully God and fully man. Because he's fully God, we cannot relate to him as equals. But because he is fully man, we can have a relationship of real friendship with him. He he came to this earth and he dwelt among us. He he rubs shoulders with the things that we rub shoulders with. He understands how we are created and how we're made and the things that we struggle with. And he counsels and guides us as the men were actually, as the, the elders were reading just about the Holy Spirit, that Jesus was the first paraclete. He was the first one to come alongside. He was the first one to walk with us, you might want to say. And he says, When I leave, I'm leaving you another paraclete, which is the Holy Spirit. So we have been this, we have been blessed to be in this relationship where Jesus calls us friends. And so as his friends, let's just take these principles and let's just kind of, kind of flesh them out and see what it tells us a little bit about our relationship with Christ. As his friends, number one, we are knit or united together with Christ. Now friends, that is what Ephesians chapter 1 um, through chapter 3 is all about. We are in Christ. We have been chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ. So not only did God choose us in Christ before the creation of the world, but we have been chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed. We have an inheritance waiting for us because we are united together with Christ. It's this unity with Christ that is foundational for this relationship. We are not separated from Him. we are united. In Him, we are united with Him. Secondly, we are loved by Christ. We read about that, but let's think about Romans chapter five verse eight. Jesus loved us in our weakness, sin, and shame. He sees us as we really are, and He still loves us. In Romans five eight, it says this: But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in going to the cross, Jesus demonstrates his love for us by serving us in death and in bearing the weight of the Father's wrath on his shoulders. In turn, he loves us. He calls us then to serve one another with the same kind of love. See, we're loved by him. We are knit. We're united together with him. Thirdly, we are covenanted with him. Jesus made a covenant with the Father and with us that is ratified by the shedding of his own blood. And Just like a lamb was slain to seal a covenant in blood between two people, so Jesus ratifies his covenant with us by shedding his own blood. It is a promise that if we put our faith and trust in his sacrifice as our savior, our sins will be forgiven and we will have life everlasting, friend. This is a covenant. This is a promise. And it's a demonstration of his commitment in relationship to those whom he has chosen for himself. And the fourth thing is this. We are honored by Christ with royal gifts. Now we could talk about things like the fruit of the Spirit, which are wonderful gifts, we could talk about spiritual gifts which are totally helpful and wonderful for the body of Christ or even the practical blessings of becoming a believer but the language of scripture is this we stand naked before god helpless and hopeless but second corinthians 5:21 for our sakes he made him to be no sin or to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so the royal garments, so to speak, that have been given to us are the actual righteous garments of Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness. Just like Jonathan took off his royal clothes and he put them on David, so Jesus takes off his righteous garment, and covers us with his righteousness. See, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Matthew Henry tells us, our Lord Jesus has thus shown his love to us that He stripped to clothe us Emptied himself to enrich us. Nay, he did more than Jonathan. He clothed himself with our rags, whereas Jonathan did not put on David's. Placing our sinful rags upon himself, Jesus took our sin away to the cross. He is, he is the epitome of love for others and for all others. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the covering or the satisfying for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What a love. What a friend. What a savior. I want to leave you with a picture this morning. It's a picture of Jonathan Edwards, the well-known, famous preacher Uh, from the 18th century, lying on his deathbed, surrounded by good friends, loyal friends, loving friends, close friends. And he turns away from them and he says this, and now, where is Jesus of Nazareth? My true and never failing friend. He knew Jesus of Nazareth to be his closest and most faithful friend. Let me ask you a few questions. Is he your friend? Are you his friend? What in your life demonstrates that to be true? Is your relationship with Jesus simply one of convenience? I'm getting what I can from him. I'm I'm, I'm looking to benefit from him. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I commanded you. So are you his friends? Is that your heart's desire? Do you long to do his will? He invites you today. Will you humble yourself and be his friend? Lord, help us as we ponder that question. For many of us, Lord, we know you We walk with you. But it's possible that we've stopped listening to your counsel. It's possible that our commitment to the covenant that you have made has waned. It's possible that we have, because of our sin or because of trials that we've gone through, that we feel that you don't want to be our friend anymore there's all sorts of things that could get in the way of this beautiful picture of the kind of friendship that you desire to have with us Lord how you've elevated us into the status of friend it's no small thing it is not a friendship that we can be frivolous with or take for granted or just be uh, laissez-faire with just be relaxed and lazy about it is a great honor, it's a great privilege, it's a great joy to be called one of your friends Lord help us to contemplate the beauty and the reality of that and then Lord as we step back from that reality that central truth and we think about the lives that we're living. Are we the kind of person that someone else could come to and someone else would would join with and say, here is a person of like-minded passion that wants to glorify you, that wants to live for you, and that wants to to, to do that together with others who are like-minded in that passion, who are longing for your glory. Lord, help us to be a church that truly can be called friends, friends with one another, but Lord, ultimately friends of yours, because you are central and you are driving it. Help us to ponder these things, Lord, and not to live in such a way that reflects the truth of this passage, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.